0: Hello again, uh, I'm Doug, as I said before, and uh, we're continuing to walk through this series on going the extra mile. And a quick call out, I'll, I'll talk more about this uh, at the end of the service, but, but next week we're going to be actually taking that literally as we walk an extra mile, as we, as we do church on the sidewalks and streets of our neighborhood. So look forward to that, I'll explain more about it in a little bit. But, but we've been looking at what it means as a, as a community to create an environment that's marked by people going the extra mile. Maybe, maybe we've been doing that. We might not have been. Oh, no, we were. Okay. All right, so yeah, we are talking about what it looked like to go the extra mile. And uh, and so the first week we talked about ensuring safety, that, that, that part of creating a hospitable environment is uh, is that people need to know that they are not, not only physically safe, but emotionally and spiritually safe as well, that, that they can come in an environment and not feel like they are going to be physically harmed, but not going to be uh, emotionally harmed, that, that they are not going to be condemned or, or, or mistreated uh, in spiritual ways. Uh, and so that's, that's what we talked about the first week. Second week uh, was this idea that, that that it all seems to be a place where their needs were anticipated, and then filled. Uh, that, that not only do we, we think through what you might want, but, but then we, we took the steps to fill those needs. Uh, and I hopefully we all agree that this is a pretty obvious and clear way to go the extra mile. Uh, and if it had been just up to me, that would have been the end of it. That, that would have been, all right, make sure they're safe, anticipate their needs, done. You've just created hospitality. Um, but interestingly, just a couple of weeks ago, I got to hear Danny Meyer talk. And Danny Meyer is a restaurateur and hospitality expert. And he made the point that these two things are not actually hospitality at all. These things are what he calls technical proficiencies. All right. These are the things that you do that you need to do well uh, to create a good environment, but they're not in and of themselves hospitality. So, For example, uh, this is like if you're going to a restaurant, you expect that that they're going to seat you promptly, that they're going to bring out your food and it's hot, and and that the orders are going to be right, that they brought you what you actually asked for. Uh, And a good restaurant will do those things and will do them well. But at the end of the day, that's a technical proficiency. That's what they're supposed to do. You're supposed to bring me the right food while it's hot. That's your job, that's not actually going the extra mile when it comes to hospitality. And so what Danny Meyer says is, is there's this other piece that the technical proficiencies, they make up like 49% of a good experience, like that you need to do things that you're supposed to do and you're supposed to do them well, but there's 51% that is itself hospitality. There's something that you need to do above and beyond the technical proficiencies, above the practical things that you do well. There's something else that you have to have before you truly have a transformative experience. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try and figure out what is this X factor? What is this third thing that we can and should be doing in order to truly be hospitable and create a transformative environment that's marked by people going the extra mile. So there we go. I've laid it out. This is what we're going to be talking about and exploring today. To get there, I want to ask a question that might not seem obvious or like it relates uh, in, in a straightforward way, but I think it is really important. So serious question. I want you to think about this. And and come up with an answer in your head. So I'm not going to make you share it. But the question is this if someone were to ask you to describe heaven, how would you do it? How would you describe heaven? You know, maybe it's a friend or a kid, and someone's saying, you know, what what is this heaven thing that, that Christians seem to care about? Okay, you got an answer, hopefully. You know one or two things that you would say to help someone understand the reality of heaven that's apparently so important to our faith. Now I don't know what your answers were in your head. Uh, I know that some of the common cultural conceptions would be things like, "Oh, heaven is streets of gold," uh, or "Heaven is uh, clouds and angel wings." Uh, or maybe it's harps and halos." You know, these are the things that uh, describe heaven. Uh, And and maybe you've got something different. I want want you to just kind of file that away, store that for a little bit. because, Because here's the thing. The way we describe heaven matters. Because what we think heaven is like is ultimately going to be a reflection of what we think God's character is like. And then from there is ultimately going to define what kind of environments we create here on earth. All right, so Let me say that again. The way we think heaven is, is a reflection of who we think God is, which will then inform the kind of environments we create here on earth. Because if heaven is the goal, well then we're going to recreate the goal here on earth. And I think for a lot of people, heaven is not necessarily the most exciting idea. They think ah, it's like a place where like perfect people sit around being perfect and like praising God who's perfect. And, and, and I don't know, it doesn't sound all that great, honestly, if we talk about it in those terms. Not only that, like when you look at how creative people have engaged with it, you got people like Billy Joel and, and, and he's saying if he had to pick, he'd rather pick hell than heaven because uh, he'd rather laugh with the sinners having fun in hell than cry with the saints being all perfect and good up in heaven. And I don't think he's an anomaly. I, th- I think that's how a lot of, of outside people think about heaven, and I suspect it's how a bunch of us think about heaven too. It's a kind of a killjoy of a place where we have to wear robes and just, you know, kind of talk to God all day. And maybe that doesn't sound interesting. And if that's what we think heaven is, then the environment, then what we think God is, is going to be negative. Uh, as well because that doesn't sound interesting or fun so God must not be a a great God Um, in fact uh, we would probably would define how we see God because we would either see that God is a boring, mean angry God uh, who doesn't really like people all that much but for some reason lets some of them in to his perfect heavenly place Or we we say no. I actually I think God's different. I I think God is is loving and gracious and and actually wants us to be in heaven. uh, And and the wrathful stuff is not truly His character. It's something that He does in response to our sin and brokenness. And depending on which of those two you pick, well then the kind of church community you're going to have is going to be a place where. We have to do it. It's a bunch of perfect people sitting around being perfect while a perfect pastor talks about God's word and then everyone goes home and pats themselves on the back that they did their good deed for the week. And I think that's a lot of our experiences with church. But what if heaven was not a perfect place for perfect people, which means that God is not just a holier-than-thou person uh, being that, that, that lets a few select righteous people in, which means then a church environment is not actually supposed to be just a place where we all sit around pretending to be perfect all the time. Maybe there's something different. And what's interesting to me is that when people would ask this question of Jesus— He had one very specific metaphor that he used for heaven over and over and over again. And it wasn't streets of gold, it wasn't harps and halos and angel wings. Uh, He had one thing that he went to over and over again. So let's just real fast go through that in some of the gospels when people ask Jesus about heaven. Jesus said, well I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. He calls it a feast. Later on, someone else is asking him a question. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven, what's heaven like? It's like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. All right, not just in Matthew. When Luke is talking about Jesus, he describes this moment where Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? He's asking about heaven. Jesus replied, And people will come from all over the world, from east and west, north and south, to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And then lastly, uh, later on in Luke, uh, Jesus is telling a parable about a poor man. And he said, finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham. Where? At the heavenly banquet. I'm not going to put any of you on the spot, but, but my guess is not too many of you said feast or banquet in your description of heaven. And if you did, Gold Star, you can just check out for the rest of this message because you know everything I, I have to say. But, right, but probably most of us didn't go there. And, and, and so this is huge because Jesus is painting a picture of a whole different concept for heaven. It's not just some prim and perfect place that's boring uh, and, and, and people are just being self righteous, it's a feast, it's a banquet. And if that's true, then God is the host of the feast. And, and God's the one who says, no, this is what I think heaven is like, what I want it to be like for you. And if that's true, then we can understand God's nature is a much more loving, gracious thing than than what we sometimes uh, have felt or experienced from the way he's been talked about, that that he's not a a museum curator, you know, and and bring people in like, you know, don't touch anything expensive because it might break. He's a feast creator and he's inviting people to something glorious with him. And then if that's true, that will have an impact on what kind of community we create here because the church is no more and no less than an outpost of heaven in this life. This is big, guys, because whatever heaven is, then the church is going to reflect that, and it should be an an embassy of heaven on earth. And so if we think heaven is a museum where you can't touch anything because you don't want to break it because it's perfect, then we're going to create a museum here on earth where everyone needs to be perfect and righteous before they can come in and, and God forbid, you touch anything. Or if heaven is a feast and God is the feast giver, then our community here is supposed to be a feast itself. And what kind of feast would it be like? And so with that kind of question prompting us, now we're going to go to the text for this morning. We're actually not even talking about Jesus today. We're going back even farther back to the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah, his, his one job was to tell people who God is, what he was like what he wanted us to live like and and ultimately what heaven would be like. And so Isaiah in chapter 25 is giving a prophecy where he's saying to the people, here's what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be like God living on his holy mountain. And then he proceeds to describe this mountain. So let's look and see what Isaiah has to say about heaven uh, and the kind of place that God is creating. He's say, saying to God, God, you have been a ref- on this mountain. You will be a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. On the mountain of God, God is a refuge and a shelter and a shade. Now, now, now put on your, your your lens and your filter. What have we been talking about with the extra mile for these last few weeks? What was Step one a place of safety. And look at the picture that Isaiah painted 4,500 years ago. Um, That that the first thing to say about this heavenly mountain, the place where God is going to dwell for eternity, is that it's a place of safety and refuge. Right, But he's not done. He has more to say. So then he continues. And on this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. What's he talking about? This shroud, the sheet... What he's saying is God will swallow up death itself forever. Right? He he sees this need that every mortal human being has, that every one of us, no matter whether our life is good or bad, rich or poor, uh, happy or sad, every one of us, the end of our life is marked by death and the grave. This is a need that's facing all of us, that death is coming. And God anticipated this need and fulfilled it. He, He actually took away will take away the shroud of death. Not only that, on this mountain, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. All the the struggles and the hardships and the tears from this life, God anticipates our needs and removes them. This disgrace that keeps people away from God, he will, he will take it away from them. Doesn't this match up with step two of, of this extra mile environment that we're trying to create, this anticipating and filling of people's needs, which means if we keep going, maybe Isaiah is going to tell us what step three is of this extra mile hospitable environment. So, fingers crossed, let's see. Let's see what it says. And so, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare what? What? A feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Guys, check this out. This isn't something Jesus made up. There's, there's this idea that I, that I encounter over and over again in the world that, that Old Testament God was mean and angry and didn't like people. And then Jesus came along and for some reason now God's lovey-dovey and touchy-feely and loves everybody and, and that they're different. But, but to make this point that it's not different. When Jesus said God wants heaven to be like a feast, he wasn't doing something new or saying something different about God's character. He was actually mirroring something God had been saying all along. That heaven is a place of banqueting. It's a feast. For all people, and what's the tone of that feast? Well, it continues on. So the people that are sharing in that feast in that day, those people will say, "Surely this is our God. This is who God is. He's not primarily angry and wrathful and mean, uh, and and maybe just let some holier than thou people in. This is our God. He's loving and gracious, and, and provides a feast for us. We trusted in Him, and He saved us." This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And so there it is. We're wondering what the X factor is, what it is we need to add to the technical proficiencies to truly create a hospitable environment. It tells us right here we rejoice. And so, a hospital environment, what's that extra 51%? It's being joyful and being a place where we're actually excited to see people and have them be here. See, Danny Meyer says, technical proficiencies, they're the things that you do. But hospitality is how you make someone feel. Hospitality, it's not something you do. It's how you make someone feel. And the way that you should make them feel is joyful. That they were wanted That uh, It's it's like cheers, right? Every time Norm entered the bar, what happened? Everybody, no matter what they were doing, yelled, Norm! They were so joyful that he was there. That's the picture. And that's the missing 51% that we need to go the extra mile and to create an environment that mirrors heaven. And that people want to be at. And so... Isn't it great how this worked? I just, I love it when a, when a message comes together. Like, we needed to fill in the blanks, we needed a third thing. The Isaiah passage talked about being joyful, so we've got it. Go and start being joyful so that people want to be here. Okay? And the good news is, it only took 12 minutes, so we, we can be done. Right? We, we know it doesn't work that way. We know that, uh, that you can't command being joyful. Uh, and. And in fact, we also know that, that even if this is the heavenly promise, it's maybe not always the experience that we have even in our own faith. Right? And, and I've I got to tell you, like, as I've been self-examining for this message and, and, and even just witnessing the lives of people that I get to walk alongside, I, I'm not sure that joy is a common adjective that we use. In fact, if I were to do a survey... And I were to say, pick an adjective that describes your life and your, your Christian walk and, and your community of faith, and, and I gave you a choice. And if one of the choices was joyful and the other choice was stressed, I know which one I would pick, and it's not joyful. And I see that in the lives of people around me, that when we look at an adjective to describe our own lives, stressed is a far more accurate one than joyful. And so why is that? And how do we get there? How do we create this feeling when you can't command or boss or artificially do something that you don't feel? And so as I've wrestled with this disconnect that that we are are people uh, whom God has prepared a holy mountain, he's got a feast waiting for us, and we know that's coming, uh, and and it's a feast that that the Bible says is joyful uh, because our our safety is provided, our needs are met, and so it's a joyful experience. Why doesn't that match up with our own lives? Certainly not mine. And, And what I've thought about as I've examined that disconnect is this, that I think that there are really two kinds of feasts, and I think that we have all experienced both of them and The first kind of feast is one where the feast itself is the point, and the feast needs to be good and great and perfect, and the people who are there are just there to serve the needs of the feast and Just one example of that is like if you 've ever had to go to like a corporate Banquet, like a Christmas party, you know, something that's kind of mandated, and 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 theoretically they're a lot of fun, right? But but having gone to some of those myself, like like they're kind of stressful. Because you have to dress up, you got to be the best version of yourselves and then you got to go and you're surrounded by coworkers and people you work with and, uh, and you can't really let them know, you know, the, the real you and, uh, and, and so you're putting on this, this act the whole time because you're trying to be respectable at this feast. And I know my wife and I, when we've gone to those, like, like we have to wear the best clothes we have, the most attractive things and, and we come home from those exhausted from the effort of being the most sparkly versions of ourselves for three hours, and we're tired, and it's a feast. The food's good, the venue's amazing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the feast itself, but, but it's not joy-giving by any means, and in fact, it, it's increasing of stress and pressure. I've also been, and I think you have too, I've been to a second kind of feast, which is the feast is not the point, but the people who are there, the point that this is your backyard barbecue, right? Where, where you are invited just because people wanted you to be there your family, your friends. There's no formality, there's no dressing up. Uh, it's just simply we want you here, stay as long as you want, leave when you need, do what you want. Uh, you're, you're here, we love you, we value you, just be at this feast with us. And so, even if we grant Jesus's premise that heaven is supposed to be like a feast. I suspect that most of us believe in our heart of hearts that the feast of heaven is like that first kind of feast, this kind of formal, got to be the best version of yourself. Uh, Just to even be invited, you've, you've got to be better than everybody else. And then once you're there, you've got to keep pretending to be better than everybody else. And it's not fun. You're not joking and bantering. You're sitting there properly watching the entertainment and and, and trying to live up to some standard. And so we think that that's the kind of feast Jesus and Isaiah are talking about. And I think that's why so many of our churches are places that people don't want to be. For the same reason that a lot of us wouldn't necessarily go to the office Christmas party if we didn't know the boss was going to be there watching. Because if we're going to create environments of heaven on earth uh, and if the church is, is an outpost of, of what heaven is supposed to be, then, then people, if they really believe that about heaven and it's the first kind of feast, then they're going to make that kind of environment here. And church is going to be a place where you need to get your act together and you need to be on your best behavior and certainly don't touch anything. But what if it's the second kind of feast? What if heaven is the kind of feast where it's not the feast itself that matters, it's the people who are there that matters? That changes the game. That's a whole different picture. That's not a feast, that's a party. If we're talking about heaven that way. And and I think scripture is very clear, uh, if you look at it and, and you look at the breadth of it, that that's the kind of feast Jesus is describing. Not only Jesus, Isaiah himself. There was a line I read it already, but where it says that, that at this feast, all the disgrace of people is taken away. This isn't a feast where you have to earn entry or acceptance, where you have to be uh, graceful or, or respectable. It's a place, place where God Himself takes the disgrace away, so that you can be at His feast. That's a place where the people are the point, not the feast itself. And, and the best summary of that that I know is from a letter to the Hebrews. is an early Christian letter that was written describing what Jesus did. Because how did God take away the disgrace of the people so that they could be at his feast? Here's how he did it. Because it's talking about Jesus. And Jesus, because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. <clears throat> its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And where's God's throne? At the heavenly feast, right? But this is huge. And, and, and it's so easy uh, in this moment to just say, oh, that sounds good. Because of the joy endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Because we forget how shameful the cross was. Now we live in a day where the cross is just a nice piece of jewelry uh, or it's a thing that we use to decorate uh, you know, buildings or, or it's a mark of our faith. The cross is not shameful at all. But it was hugely shameful. And so we cannot skip past this line too much. And, and here's where I have to apologize in advance to you because here's the thing. I, I've gathered that I'm starting to earn a bit of a reputation here as being kind of the, the gross pastor. I don't know why. And, and, and I, I don't, I'm not doing that on purpose. It's, it's not like some exhibitionist streak that I have. However, it is that, that if the Bible's gonna go there, I have to go there too. And so if the Bible's going to talk about shame, th- th- then we can't skip past that too quickly. But I know that's weird for us because I think so many of us grew up in a church environment where we thought heaven and church were the first kind of feast. And so everyone needed to be very proprietist and, and respectful and certainly, of course, the pastor. And there's certain topics you don't talk about or share up front because they're not respectable things. They're, they're kind of shameful. They're not polite. And so it's weird when someone goes against those norms, and yet if the Bible is going to talk about shame, and, and, it, and it's my job to, to help unpack this and make sure that this hits you uh, where God himself wanted it to hit you, then I, then I have to go there as well. And so it's with deep embarrassment that I am about to introduce you to one of my favorite movies of all time, Billy Madison. Well, I guess that's it. It's okay, everybody. Back on the bus. Hey, what's with Ernie? I don't know. I'll be right back. Hey, Ernie. What's up? Nothing. You falling in love with the wall or something? I had an accident. You had an accident? What does that mean? You! Oh, I know. Okay. Uh... Don't worry, buddy. You hang tight. I'll be right back. Hey, look, everybody. Billy peed his pants. Of course I peed my pants. Everybody my age pees their pants. It's the coolest. Really? Yes! You ain't cool unless you pee your pants. Wow. Hey, man. Ernie pees pants, too. All right. I can't believe I'm about to utter this next sentence, but Billy Madison is a Christ figure. Do you get it? See, see this is the shame right right like this poor young boy ernie like like he had done something that was so shameful he would be excluded and ostracized for the rest of that school year if not longer and the way billy madison solved that problem was not to get him a new pair of pants not to clean him up somehow or hide what was wrong or shameful about him it was to willingly enter into that shame with him and would say, "You've got this shame." You're like, all right, I'm going to wet my pants too, and and, and then I'm going to set the tone that that the cool people, the people who are invited, the people who are in our community, they're people who pee their pants. And suddenly, there's no shame. He's getting high fived even in the midst of this awful thing that's happened to him. And this is the picture. It's not that Jesus made us uh, holy, righteous, perfect people. He does do that eventually. And that's got its whole thing. It's called sanctification, and that's important. He does do that eventually. But we're invited to the feast while we're still sitting in soaked jeans. He doesn't say, change first, let me clean you up first. He says, nope, you're here, and I want you here. And then later on, we can talk about getting you a new set of clothes. But you're invited to the feast in the midst of your shame. And why? Because Jesus himself was willing to go first in that shame as well. And to say, if I can be in the shame and be at this feast, then you can too. And why? Why does Jesus do this? This is the thing. Again, we skip past it. Because of the joy awaiting him. And because there's not an object in the sentence, it's easy to ignore what this means. What is the joy that's awaiting Jesus? What is it? Is the joy getting to go back to heaven with God? Is the joy getting, oh, I'm perfect and I'm holy and, and, and that's the joy is getting to be per- who I am. The joy is us. The joy awaiting him is that we get to be at the feast with him. The, the thing that makes the cross worth it, that makes entering into our shame worth it, is that he knows that by doing that, we get to be at the party. And that's the joy. And that's why when Isaiah describes God's feast, even before he knew Jesus was coming, he could say it was a place where there was rejoicing and joy, it's a place where God wants us at the feast. And so I can't uh, force joy on myself. I can't force it on you. But what I can do is, is receive what Jesus himself has done joyfully for me. And that's going to change everything. Because here's what I've learned. I, I had kind of a come to Jesus moment myself at the beginning of the year. Because my wife asked me, in the midst of our stress uh, and, and, and the, the Christian lives that we were trying to lead and all of the things that were on our shoulders, she, she just, in, in, in graciousness and sincerity, just said to me, Doug, what would bring you joy in this season and I was so grateful to have a wife who would even think to ask me that question, but, but it was even more scary because when she did ask that question, I realized I had no idea. In good faith, she wanted to bless me and, and find a way to bring joy into my life, and I could not think of a thing that would bring me Joy. Because even the things I could think of that might be fun, uh, like, like but I, I don't have time for those because I've got, I've got ministry to do. I've got a family to provide for. I've got budgets to figure out. I, I don't even have, have time or margin to even let joy enter in because there's, there's so many things I have to do. But that moment forced me to take a step back and reevaluate. And what I saw even before I got to this text was that part of the thing that was keeping me away from joy was this feeling like I had to live up to all the expectations of those around me. I have a boss and he needs me to be the most model, perfect employee. I have a wife and she needs me to be a strong leader for our family. I have friends who need me to be supportive of them and all the stuff they're going through. And, and these obligations, and, and, and then on my part, I had flaws and weaknesses that kept me from being those things. And so what I started doing a few months ago was being transparent about my flaws and my shames and my fears. I started being the gross pastor. And what I found was rather than being met with rejection and hostility and condemnation, people actually accepted me for who I am and they appreciated my authenticity. And more than that, what I found was with this burden of needing to live up to other people's expectations and needs. With that removed, joy came back. And I'm in a place now where, where, where I'm seeing joy in in, in nooks and crannies that I never saw it before because I've removed the stress of needing to pretend like there was no shame or flaw or fear in my life I embraced the fact that I've got a spot at this feast not because I got my act together which I'm trying to do every day but because the joy for God is that he wants me at the feast before I do anything else right And if he wants me at the feast, he wants you at the feast. And if he wants you at the feast, he wants every person that's out there. He he says it in in, in the gospels and in Isaiah, north, south, east, west, all peoples, all nations, our God joyfully wants everyone with him. And the point of the feast is not the feast. The point of the feast is us. And not only do we not have to earn it, we couldn't earn it if we tried. And even the trying to earn it is actually the thing that keeps us on the outskirts of the feast looking in. How do we create an environment that goes the extra mile? How do we bring joy so that when people come into our space, they, they feel it themselves? It's giving up shame, which is the scariest thing ever, and it sounds like it's a path to depravity and all sorts of evil things. It's actually just saying... Jesus loves me even though I peed my pants. He wants me here in all my messiness, and all my brokenness. And if we truly believe that, then the kind of environment that we're going to create here at this particular church, at this particular place in time and space is a place where people will feel the joy rating off of us. And if you don't feel that, then, then here's my prayer for you this morning, is that you would internalize and receive what I'm telling you. God wants you at his feast, bugs and all. And if you believe that, if you let that truth drive out all shame and embarrassment in your life, I really believe that the joy will follow close behind as well. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear God, I just come before you with awe and humility. That from the dawn of time, when you were trying to explain to us what you wanted for us, how you wanted to be with us so badly that you built a garden for us in Eden, uh, that that you kept through all of our history, like, like finding ways to bring us back to you because you were saying, you just want to feast with us. You just want us to have a spot at your table and it's not earned by being better people it's earned just simply because you like us and you love us and you want us there. And so Lord, I thank you that you sent your son to endure the shame so that we could be included in the midst of our shame. And Lord, I do pray that you would use that sacrifice to lift that burden off the shoulders of every person here. That you would help us leave shame behind so that joy could fill in the cracks. And that we could be marked by that in our lives and in this very community of faith here at St. John. Lord, this is what we pray, trusting in your powerful name to make it happen. Amen.